There we go. Uh, so um, the good news is uh, that thankfully Dan will be able to make it to Baltimore uh, later on this week, and we'll get to be part of this big conference, but he wasn't able to be here now. Um, he, of course, sends his regrets. I'm sure you join with me in praying for the health of the family member whose medical problems kept him away from us. Uh, but Dan is somebody who does textual criticism, which doesn't charge you up as much as it charges me up. So let me explain what that is. Basically, Dan's the kind of guy who's responsible for the footnotes in your Bible. All those places in your Bible where it says, some manuscripts say, or some manuscripts omit this, or it may be that it should read like this, or this is not found in the earliest and best manuscripts. These kinds of footnotes come from the labors <clears throat> of textual critics. And these are people who study the manuscripts of the Bible. And as we're going to see, our passage today is one in which we find... What's that? I don't know. Could be around here someplace. Oh, there it is. And it works. Good. So, uh, in, in our passage today, we have uh, a place where you get one of those footnotes. Let me read. I'll start uh, in verse 30, at the beginning of the sentence. This is in Romans chapter 11, starting in verse 30. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God, have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. Now, does anybody with sharp eyes see a little footnote someplace there? Okay, yes. What, what, where is it and what does it say? Some manuscripts omit now. So that now, the second now in verse 31, is omitted in some manuscripts. See, there is a journey that Paul's letter to the Romans took from his lips to the page that is set before us. Of course, the beginning part of that journey involved Paul dictating it. Paul probably did not personally write out all of this. Uh, we hear later on in the, uh, at the end of, uh, of the book. In fact, uh, I, Tertius, this is chapter 16, verse 22, I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. Basically, the chapter 16 is all a bunch of shout-outs from Paul. And then Tertius, who is the one actually writing down the letter, jumps in and says, hey, uh, there are other letters where, at the, toward the end, Paul will jump in and say, hey, uh, see with what large letters I am writing in my own hand. Um, that's not Paul just showing off at the end of a letter. That's Paul kind of jumping in at the end, adding on his own personal tagline. Uh, Paul dictated this letter, and, uh, and then that letter was carried from Corinth, where Paul wrote it, to Rome, where the Romans were gathered, probably by a woman named Phoebe, who was one of Paul's uh, allies in this mission. And then what happened to it? 
Well, it would have been read to the congregation in Rome. Probably most of them were not literate, so they needed to have it read to them. And then over the years, that letter started to get worn out. And somebody said, well, maybe it'd be a good idea if we made a copy of this so we have it, <clears throat> maybe for daily use, since the other one maybe is not in the best shape. And then there, of course, were other people who had heard that Paul had written this great letter to the church at Rome that maybe it would be good for other folks to read. So copies got made. Now, they did not have Xerox machines back in the first century. So how were these copies made? By hand, hence the name manuscript, written by hand. So you have people copying them by hand, and copying them by hand, and copying them by hand. And then inevitably, copies are made not from the original, but copies are made from the copies. And then copies are made from those copies. And so on and so forth over hundreds of years, to the point where today <clears throat> we have... In the Greek language alone, over 5,000 manuscripts containing part, at least, of the New Testament. If you add in all the other languages, the old Latin translations and Slavonic and Coptic, you end up with over 25,000 manuscripts of the New Testament, which blows away any other ancient literary source. There really, there's, there's nothing that even comes close to the number of manuscripts that we have. Now, the problem with having this many manuscripts is that over the years of copying, as one manuscript is copied and then copied again and copied again and copied again, little changes creep in because every person who is copying is not a machine but a human being. Human beings are fallible, they make mistakes, they get tired, they get confused, and as a result, there are changes that creep into the manuscript. And if you're copying something that is a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy, the copy that you're making can include changes that were made several generations before that you just know as part of the text, but maybe they weren't there originally. In fact, every single one of these manuscripts that we have is unique. By which I mean none of them is exactly the same as any other one. Which, if you think about it, is not that big a surprise. I mean, imagine you copying down the entire New Testament. Just think about copying Romans. How many of us, if we sat down and tried to copy out Romans, would at the end of the day end up with exactly what was written down? We'd make some mistakes along the way. Now imagine doing it with quill pens and with candlelight. Imagine you don't know English, but you have to copy something in English. Stuff's going to happen. But the good news is that we have an awful lot of these manuscripts. And if, say, all of us here were to copy out the book of Romans and those little changes and mistakes would creep in along the way, if we could look at all of them together, then probably we would be able to see the places where BJ wrote something down wrong or where Marlene thought she was correcting somebody's grammar but actually was introducing another problem or 
Kendall thought something was stylistically a little awkward, so she was going to straighten that out, or where maybe some Canadian decided that something was spelled wrong and you need to spell color with a U. <clears throat> these things happen. Not to mention, besides all these manuscripts, by the way, we also have what are called patristic sources. When, when the, the church fathers wrote commentaries, when they gave sermons, and those were written down and they would, would quote from the scriptures in them, if we lost every single manuscript that we have, if, if suddenly they all disappeared, we could reconstruct the entire New Testament apart from 17 verses just from what the church fathers have, right? So again, we have an embarrassment of riches when it comes to the resources that we have in order to determine what that original text is. This week, I will be attending the annual meeting of the Evangelical Theological Society. Well, why don't you come and join me if you're so excited about this? All of you suffering from insomnia... What did you say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the doctrinal basis of the Evangelical Theological Society is basically the Bible is the Word of God and is inerrant in the autographs. And that God exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Inerrancy and Trinity, those are the two bases of what it means to be part of the Evangelical Theological Society. And what's really handy is that we say that we believe the Bible is inerrant, and I don't necessarily like that word. You can say trustworthy or reliable if you prefer. In the autographs, meaning in the first time these things were written down. Conveniently, we don't have any of those around to look at. So that gives us a little bit of wiggle room. But it also forces us to reckon with the reality that we are dealing with a text that God, in his wisdom, entrusted to human beings to transmit over the centuries. But because we have so many of these manuscripts that exist that are errant copies of errant copies of errant copies of, at some point, some errant copy of an inerrant autograph, then we have a lot to work with and we can sort out what those changes were. And the fact is the vast majority of the changes of what are called textual variants, places where the text varies from one manuscript to another, the vast majority of them are absolutely insignificant, by which I mean they mean nothing. There are distinctions without a difference. One of the biggest examples of this is what's called the movable new. The Greek letter N shows up at the end of words sometimes and sometimes it doesn't. Sort of like we would say an apple instead of a apple. Some of you still say a apple. Literacy isn't universal. But there are also words that some people will put an an before and not. I, when I talk about an historical event... I say an. Other people think that that's stupid. You should say a historical event. We can fight about that later. But there are a ton of places in these manuscripts where simply it's a question of spelling or where you have, you know, the Canadian spelling of a word like color with a U or the American correct spelling without. <laughs> means absolutely nothing. So the vast majority of these variants mean nothing. 
And there are lots of them that are easy to resolve as errors, as mistakes, right? So I'll give you an example from the book of Romans, chapter 5. The very first verse of chapter 5 in the book of Romans. What do you have in your Bible? You have that, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, there are some manuscripts that instead of saying, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, they say, let us have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you'll remember, when we went back, uh, when, we were, when we were reading this together, it doesn't make sense after Paul is talking about what we have to say then, let us have. Paul is talking about the fact that we do have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the difference between we have and let us have is one letter in the Greek. In fact, it's the difference between one vowel and another. Even more damnably, it's the difference between two letters that sound almost the same. One of the obnoxious things about Greek is you have the letter omicron and the letter omega. And they both sound like O or aw, or nobody's really sure because nobody has any tapes from first century Greek speakers to listen to. And we also know that the Bible was written in what was called Koine Greek. It wasn't written in the, in the elevated Greek of the poets. It wasn't written in Homeric uh, Greek. This was written in the normal Greek that people used when they wrote down receipts, when they wrote letters to each other, when they put down a grocery list. This was normal, everyday Greek. And just like with normal, everyday English, there are different dialects and people pronouncing different words different ways. So probably somebody just heard that wrong, because you know how you do mass production of manuscripts? One dude reads, and everybody else writes it down. So some of these are just mistakes, and it's kind of easy to say, oh yeah, that was a mistake. And then there are plenty of them that are, are really of little significance. One of, one of the Biggest places you see this. You can go look again in Romans. The very first verse, we have Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Well, basically every time in Scripture you find Christ Jesus, you've got a bunch of other manuscripts that say Jesus Christ. And since back in the day people knew that Christ wasn't Jesus' last name and that H wasn't his middle initial, it was written down different ways. Sometimes Jesus Christ, sometimes Christ Jesus, sometimes just Jesus, sometimes just Christ. You get the idea. So a ton of variants involve this kind of thing, where really there's, there's, there's little, if any, significance. I'll give you another one, also in Romans, in chapter 4, verse 19. I'll start in verse 18. Against all hope, Abraham and hope believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was good as dead since he was about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Well, in some manuscripts, what you have here is where, where it says in your translation, probably, uh, where he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. Some manuscripts have the word already in there. He faced the fact that his body was already good and dead. Does that make a difference? 
No, not really. No. But it keeps textual scholars employed. <laughs> and it gives you nice, long, complicated footnotes at the bottom of your Greek Testament. Seriously, I have here in my Greek New Testament a list of all the sources where it is there and a list of the sources where it's not. Actually, this is a selective list, since obviously they're not going to write down each of the 5,000 manuscripts in the Greek, let alone the other 20,000, let alone all the patristic sources where you can find them. So, some of them are really of little significance. Most are of absolutely no significance. Some of them you can spot pretty quickly what the problem was, and then others you have differences that probably don't make a whole lot of difference. But then there are the others. Now, again, what I want to make sure I communicate clearly is that the fact that we have all of these manuscripts and that the manuscripts are so diverse that they have so many differences among them, again, emphasizes God's humility in entrusting his word to fallen human people. But the fact that he has given us so many means that he has also made it possible for some of the smarter of those fallen human people to come to a really, really good sense of what that original text was. So we can come very, very, very close. In fact, basically, 99.6% of the New Testament is not really in any doubt. Then there's the other part. Now, the other part, again, I want to make it clear, nothing there in the parts where, where we just can't be sure uh, has anything to do with affecting core Christian doctrine. Nothing we say in the Nicene Creed is going to be changed based on which reading we use in some of these, uh, in some of these passages where there is a variant. We're not going to believe or disbelieve the Trinity based on something. Jesus did die an atoning death for our sins. That's not at all open to negotiation. But there are some places where they can affect our interpretation. And so what textual scholars will do, text critics will do, is they will apply two types of criteria to try to determine what that original reading was. One type is external criteria. So they will look at the age of the manuscripts. Generally speaking, if a manuscript is older, it is more likely to be a witness to the original text simply because there's been less time for changes, for mistakes to creep in along the way. And some of those changes, by the way, are not necessarily mistakes. Sometimes the changes involve one person who's making a copy saying, oh, they got that wrong. I'm going to fix that. The problem is sometimes they weren't actually fixing it. They were making it worse. Uh, but generally, uh, the older manuscripts are, are, going to be, uh, are, are going to be more reliable. And you also are going to use criteria like the quality of the manuscripts. That's another criterion called an external criterion. Some manuscripts clearly were written with more care than others. There are some where you can see that there are more, more errors made, that the, the, the copying was more hasty. Whereas with manuscripts of a higher quality, you see that they are much more consistent and much more uh, correctly copied. And so you're going to give more weight to those readings. But then there are the internal criteria. Basically, you look at what one text says, and then what another text says, and then what another text says, and another text, and you 
fundamentally are trying to say which reading best explains all of the other ones, right? So if I have some different readings, what's the one that would most be likely to have been turned into the others? Right? And there are a few standard rules that are applied here. One is lectio difficilior, basically means the harder reading is likely to be preferred. It's much more likely that a scribe is going to find something that looks wrong or difficult or strange and turn that into something that makes sense than it is for a scribe to take something that makes sense and make it obscure, right? That's left for preachers. So you look and you say, okay, this reading is much more difficult to, to make sense of. This seems strange. Probably it's more likely that somebody made that into something that was going to be easier to read. Or it could also be uh, that, uh, uh, or an another uh, criteria is, is to use the shorter reading. Generally speaking, scribes were more likely to take a shorter reading and make it longer rather than to make, take a longer reading and make it shorter. I don't know if it's that they were being paid by the word, but usually they would be more likely to add something in for fear of deleting something in the holy word of God rather than to leave uh, something out. So plenty of other, uh, of other uh, criteria that can be used. You look at the grammar, you think about pronunciation, you think about that you know, poor sleepy scribe in a scriptorium someplace while the monk up front is droning on and there are 20 of them in the room with quills and bad light trying to copy the thing down, you can kind of guess at what mistakes somebody in that situation might have made. So, what does this mean for our passage? Time to look at some manuscripts. This is the really exciting part. And this, is, these, I, this is great. This really is. I love, I love my job, and especially when I get to do this sort of thing. So this is probably the best, uh, in terms of quality, Codex Vaticanus is probably the, the best of the manuscripts of the Greek New Testament that we have. Uh, it is uh, almost entirely complete. Uh, it's uh, missing, a, uh, you know, because the, these were codexes or books, right? It, and, and of course, if your Bible, like mine, gets a lot of work, then pages will fall out of it. Um, so that happened to some of these as well. Uh, but uh, Codex Vaticanus is here. This is the page that has uh, our, our text on it. And so let's, uh, let's zoom in. And uh, in the next slide, we can see. So here's, here's our verse. Starts here, and, uh, and it ends here. So right here, this, all this is our verse. And now what we see here, right toward the end, you see it looks like it says N-Y-N. That's the Greek word nun, which means now. That Y is the Greek letter upsilon, which is a U. The N is the Greek letter nu, which is an N. Makes it easy. So, that they may now receive mercy. That's Codex Vaticanus, 4th century, very early manuscript, very high quality. Let's go on to the next manuscript. This is Alexandrinus, also a very high quality manuscript, a little bit later, 5th century, uh, from this was in the library at Alexandria. Uh, let's uh, once again zoom in on our verse. And we see, this is the verse, in order that they may receive mercy. So, 
There is no now. That would be here. There's no N-Y or N. Yeah, no nun. No. Not here. Missing. Or was it not supposed to be there in the first place? I don't know. So it would be here if it were here, but it's not. What? What's that? Yeah, that, there, there is one earlier in the verse, right? But it's not here. All right, let's move on to the next manuscript. This is Codex Sinaiticus. Oh, and our, our little symbol isn't right. That's supposed to be the um, Hebrew letter Aleph rather than the symbol for the yen. Okay. Uh, <laughs> great story about how we get this manuscript that well, I don't have time to tell this morning, but... Uh, there's an example of an error. You, see, what you'd have is when you had the, uh, the scribes would import a, a PowerPoint file, um, and then, the pro, then, then Media Shout would read it as, as a different symbol. All right, let's move on to the, to the zoom in. So here, here's, our, here's our verse, actually two verses together. And you hear, you, you look, there's the first none, and there, oh, and there's another one. So it isn't, it's in Sinaiticus. So it is in there, all right? You know what else is in there? You can barely see it. This. Let's zoom in a little more. This is the pronoun, which means which is they. You can barely see it. You, now, text critics have um, really fancy tools like magnifying glasses, and um, and they also can use ultraviolet light, and they can you know adjust. Actually, what what Dr. Wallace does is he goes around the world, and he takes ultra high resolution photographs of these manuscripts so that scholars can study them without having to physically go to these libraries and talk their way in and, and, uh, and so forth. You can just pull this stuff up on your computer and zoom in tight. And uh, uh, Anyway, so this, this is, here's the interesting thing. Sinaiticus, you can see not only what was the original text, but this is in the corrector's hand. In Sinaiticus, you can see there are places where after the original manuscript was written, probably a century or two later, somebody else came along and made a few corrections because he knew there was supposed to be a pronoun there from everywhere else. Now, here's the interesting thing. Here's a great example where you don't even need the pronoun. Right, Steve? Because the way Greek verbs work, they may now have received mercy. That's, That's all embedded in the word. Having the pronoun in there can be a stylistic feature, it can be a way to emphasize something, but, but you don't have to have it to make sense of the sentence. So this corrector later on said, no, we've got to make sure we throw that in. So he stuck it in there. So that's, that's Sinaiticus. So we, but we do here, so, so we found that it's in Vaticanus, not in Alexandrinus, it's in Sinaiticus. Now let's look at the next one. This is, this is Codex Berenianus, which is also... Uh, uh, codices usually have two uh, things identifying. They have a number, and then they'll have a letter. Codex Bernianus is, is Codex G. And uh, Codex G is actually uh, much better in terms of its, its uh, text of Paul than it is of the Gospels. Uh, but here, you can also see that this is, is a, a diglot text. So this is both... Uh, zoom in on the next one so we can see it. This is both Greek and Latin. And the person who was writing down uh, the, uh, the codex here uh, was much better in Latin than he was in Greek. So actually he made some kind of rookie mistakes in the grammar on how he formed those verbs. Uh, but here we also see 
there is no none. It's, we got the one at the beginning, and then nunc, which is the Latin for now, but it's not there. That actually is the, the codex from which we get the picture on the cover of your bulletin, which is the picture we're using for this series on Romans. The, that's the, the Greek letter P. You would have been told that it's pi when you're in math class, but uh, the Greek letter P, which starts out the name Paulos, Paul, the first word in our book of Romans, and as often was the case, they would sometimes make the first letter of the book extra fancy. I kind of like it because it sort of looks like a portal that you can go through. So I, I ripped that off uh, to, to use for our, uh, for our, our bulletin. So that's, that's what that codex has. But before the codexes, and these are all uh, what are called unseals. They're all written in capital Greek letters. Uh, what you get around the 8th, 9th century is it, manuscripts are usually written in minuscule, in, in cursive, in, in lowercase letters, uh, which is, is much more efficient to write. You can fit more text in. Um, but uh, before even these unseal manuscripts, before manuscripts that are back in the 4th and 5th, in this case, 9th century, you have papyri. You want to move on to the next? This is the latest project of the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts. They just completed this project of digitizing the papyri, the biblical papyri, in the Chester Beatty Library in Dublin. This is one of the most important of our witnesses to the biblical text. This also, incidentally, is probably something like what the text would have looked like when it got sent from Corinth to Rome, because it was probably written on papyrus. Papyrus is the paper of the time. You wouldn't write down a letter on parchment. I mean, you, you know, you put diplomas on parchment. Uh, parchment is much, much, much more expensive uh, to, to use. Um, but this is papyrus, and uh, let's, let's zoom in a bit. So here we have the text. Again, it's, it's hard to see, but you can, you can make out the words, or you make out, make out the letters, and uh, you see that um, our verse starts here. So uh, we move along. And we see that there is no none. It would be here if it were there, but it's not. So here, on a papyrus dated probably to about 200. So this is 150 years after Paul wrote Romans. The none isn't there. Uh, probably would have been here. Yeah, off the yeah. So you can see, and they're 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 crumble on the edges. They're you know some of these are extremely fragile. Uh, so, so what do we do with this? Well, I, I can tell you what the editors of my Greek New Testament do with it. They go, huh? <laughs> Basically, there is a there is a code in the what's called the uh, the, app, the critical apparatus at the bottom of the Testament. They, they will identify places where there are textual variants, and they will assign them A, B, C, or D. A means we are sure this is the text, but we're going to mention these other ones because you may be aware of them. So, for example, the pericope adulteri, the story of Jesus and the woman caught in adultery. Remember when we got to that in the book of John, and I preached a whole sermon on why I wasn't going to preach a sermon on it? That's because it's not in the earliest and best manuscripts. They're quite confident that that wasn't there. That's got an A reading. They actually put double brackets around it. If they could, they would have orange caution tape. <laughs> <clears throat> but it's much more expensive to produce when you have two colors. 
And, and, and they, they said, no, we're, we're quite confident that's it. There are also B readings where they're pretty sure. They're not going to, you know, bet the house, but they might bet the mortgage payment on it. But then you have C and D readings. C readings are readings where you go, eh, it could be this, could be that. You know, Truman said he always wanted to find a one-handed economist because they keep saying on the one hand, on the other hand. And C readings, uh, basically the editors are saying, yeah, depending on what I had for breakfast this morning, it could be this, it could be that. Then you have a very, very few D readings where they're like, beats me. We're, we're pretty sure it's not this, but we have no idea what it is. And again, very, very, very few of those. But, but on the C readings, they're like, eh, you know, you could go with this or you could go with that. And this nun is a C reading. This is a place where the editors go, eh, maybe it said now. Maybe it didn't say now again. So maybe, the editors would say, maybe Paul did in fact say, In Romans 11.31, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. Or maybe he said, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. In fact, you have some manuscripts which read, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may eventually receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. Probably it's not eventually. Probably eventually is in there because somebody originally saw now and said, well, it can't be now. Or because somebody saw nothing there and said, well, there needs to be a word there to fill out the sense. We don't know. And so not only, I will tell you, do the editors of the United Bible Society's Greek New Testament say, I don't know, Dr. Wallace says, I don't know, when I asked him to preach on this passage, he said, well, couldn't you give me one where there's at least a good answer? (laughs) And I said, actually, no, I think it'd be pretty awesome for the world's leading authority in the text of the New Testament to get up and preach a whole sermon about how he's not sure what the word is here, whether it is now or eventually or nothing at all. And he agreed that that would be cool, and then I ended up having to do the work. And so what we have to do when we reach a situation like this is to proceed with some caution. I remember a text that was assigned me in seminary where it seemed like every time the author was saying something that seemed a little bit off, she was saying, there is a variant reading that says this. And inevitably, her variant readings would fit her I'll call it unique interpretation of the text. If you are reading and you find somebody is always having to appeal to variant readings to justify what they're saying, probably they're trying a bit too hard. You need to proceed with a bit of humility and with some caution. You can say, well, it may be that this reading makes sense in light of this textual variant, but you can't lean on that too hard. You can't put too much weight on it. So it might be problematic, for example, to write, as one commentator does. Once more, we remind ourselves that Paul is here emphasizing what the potentially proud Gentile Messiah believers in Rome need to hear. The Jews who are at present hardened 
are not to be seen as automatically outside the saving purposes of God. Here is the mystery of election and its reframing by Paul in the light of the gospel. Every word in this passage is important, but among the most important is the word now, towards the end of verse 31. Some early scribes found this puzzling and either omitted it or changed it to later, but the strong probability is that this is what Paul said. To repeat, he is not talking of a subsequent mercy for presently hardened Jews. He is referring to a continuing possibility that some of them will be made jealous and so provoked into faith and salvation. Naturally, this is from N.T. Wright's new book. So the lightning could hit me at any moment, but here's a place where I think Tom Wright may be leaning a little too hard on his reading of the variant in Romans 11.31. Now, if anybody can do that, if anybody has the right, then it's Tom Wright, and I don't think I'd want to debate that with him live. But at the same time, we have to be aware that some caution is required when we get to these kinds of variants. And, and uh, as we use the resources that we use in our Bible studies and our house churches, as we're studying ourselves, just be alert to this and be suspicious if people are always trotting out variant readings to support strange things that they're saying. In this case, I don't think it's a strange thing at all. As you, you will see, I am pretty much going to be channeling Tom Wright to the best of my ability for the next six months as I try to make sense of Romans chapters 9 through 11. I, to me, his reading of it makes the best sense. And in this case, I agree with him that if now was originally in there, that would make some sense. Although you could also see Paul not having it in there. But but the main thing is that we proceed with some caution in those places where there are variants in the text. What that also means, though, is that we can proceed with confidence everywhere else. That in that 99.6% of the text that we really quite are quite sure is what we have on the page, we can be very confident. We can rely on that. You will hear people tell you that because there are so many manuscripts with so many differences, because so many of them are so much later that you can't count on them. And I don't think that that is true. I don't think the evidence that we have bears that out. And I'm grateful for the work that people like Dr. Wallace do in order to get us that much closer to understanding what those autographs are. Will you pray with me?